Lord has given me a gift. Only one. I am the most complete fighter in the world. Hello and welcome back to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world. I'm your host, Mike Scott, on this journey through the career of one of the most exciting action stars of all time. This week, we take on the 2011 Ernie Barberish-directed Assassination Games, a.k.a. Weapon. And to join me to talk the film is this week's champion, one of my good friends, F This Movie's Adam Risky. And as always, Scott will be joining me to talk about his experience making the film. And I actually learned something about why DTV movies get the titles they get. So, let's talk Assassination Games. I'm a weapon. I don't choose where I'm pointed to. One target. There's a job. The man at the business. Target's Polo. Two assassins. For one. Another potential contract. Double your usual fee. It's a job. I'll take it. For the other. <laughs> it's personal. I want it. Now two rivals. Block my shot. You made me miss. Touche. We'll become allies. The best way for us to get him is if you work together. Just what I need. A partner with a vendetta. Those dirty Interpol cuts set me up. I want the man who killed my brother. I want the guy alive. If you want a partner, you get to learn how to communicate. People choose their death when they choose how they live. Jean-Claude Van Damme, Scott Atkins, Assassination Games. You're overreacting. If I overreacted, you'd be dead. Assassination Games stars Jean-Claude Van Damme as Vincent Brazil and Adkins as Roland Flint. Brazil is one of the top assassins in the world, and Flint used to be. However, once his wife, played by Van Damme's daughter Bianca Brie, is put in a coma by deadly drug dealer Polo Yakor, played by Ivan K., Flint retires to take care of her. Once he discovers, though, that Polo has resurfaced and there's a contract on him, Flint comes out of retirement to get his revenge. Unfortunately for him, Brazil has also taken the contract and the two clash over who gets the target. The film also stars person of interest Kevin Chapman as Flint's handler and Marija Karan as October, a woman who befriends Brazil and helps awaken some sense of humanity in him. Obviously, I'll get into this more with Adam, but barring two major complaints, I dig assassination games. Barbarish knows how to shoot action, the stunts are by our old friends at Alpha Stump Bulgaria, and Van Damme and Adkins have a great rapport together. Also, while brief, their fight together is well done and far more satisfying than the one in The Shepherd. It's a movie I think y'all should definitely check out, but let's kick it over to Scott and see what he has to say about the film. All right, so Rekill was next. And again, I'm going by your IMDb, but that doesn't necessarily mean... So after Rekill, was that Assassination Games, or did you 
film something else between Rekill and Assassination Games? No, and I think it was another year until I did Assassination Games because that was 2010, September time, I believe. So that was quite a stretch from October 2009 to that's like a year. Yeah. Yeah, that's a solid year of of not working. So how did Assassination Games end up coming about? Yeah, Brad Cravoy was the producer, um, Motion Picture Corporation of America. And um, I can't remember how it came about, actually. But this was the film that introduced me to my current uh, agent at the Gersh Agency, Brett Nornsberg, because he started representing Van Damme. And so when he saw this film, he got in touch. And then the following year, things started to, to kick off for me a bit more. But anyway, it was, I can't remember how the opportunity came up. Um, I, I, I remember auditioning for it. I remember they wanted to see me read for it. So I did. And then they, they came back and, and they gave me the part and said, yeah, you're going to star in this with Van Damme. Which was a big thing, you know, second movie with Van Damme, being such a huge fan of him as a kid. I think, oh man, I'm going to be uh, starring in this movie with, with Van Damme. It's me and him, like a buddy film. And I did it. I thought it was a good script, you know, and really my character, I mean, it's, it's kind of more my story than his in some ways, because when it comes to getting the bad guy at the end, you know, it was for my character to do that because it was my uh, wife who was, was in the coma because of, because of him. I think that's right. Anyway, I think I remembered it correctly. I remember Van Damme saying to me, I remember Van Damme saying to me immediately when I got there to Romania. So like, yeah, uh, Bianca, my daughter's playing your wife. Eh? I'm like, yeah. 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 He's like, don't try anything. Huh? <laughs> oh yeah, I've, you know, I'm 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 in a relationship. Don't don't worry about it, Jean Claude. Of course, I would not, sir. Please. Said, okay, okay. But he was, he was half joking, but also letting me know. I think, but that was funny. Um. So yeah, uh, I don't know that, that it came about. Van Damme was happy with it, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. It was it was a fast shoot. Didn't have a lot of time. First time working with Ernie as well. But I was I was pleased with the result of the film when it came out. I think it came out pretty good. Um, considering it was very rushed. It felt very rushed to some scenes. I think it was done in like three weeks or something, which is the norm now, to be honest. But back then, it was like, wow, we're shooting this really quick. Um, I, as usual, of course, was like, look, got to get more action into this. So I was pushing hard to get more action in it. If I was the lead lead and it was all on my shoulders, I would just say, we're having more action in this, whether you like it or not. That's what I do these days. But, um, yeah, I'm not going to step on Van Damme's shoes. But, yeah, Van Damme was filming his reality show at the time, which was weird because he, he, he had his own camera crew with him. And I was aware that I was going to be on his ITV reality show, which was kind of weird. And, of course, working with his son as well and, and his daughter, uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I have fond memories. Um, did did my best. I was happy with it when it came out. I, th- I think it was a pretty good film. Well, so for me, it it kind of slots into the same 
category is the shepherd of it's one of the movies that I want to try and highlight on this show because I agree with you. I think it's one that has been not uh, paid attention to quite as much as it should have been because I think, uh, you know, you've made four movies with Van Damme and this is the one where I think you guys kind of interact and play off with each other the most. And I think it really works. I, I think there's a lot of good stuff here. Uh, one thing I did kind of want to talk about, and again, if you don't want this on the record, let me know. But you had mentioned on The Shepherd that you you and Isaac and Van Damme kind of had some conflicting views on how that last fight between him and you should go. And I do think that there's no question that your fight with him in this movie is a lot probably more what people were hoping the fight would be but i also know that he's working with ernie on this one uh the fight coordinator is uh i don't want to mispronounce his name but stanimir stamatov who's also worked with him a lot this feels like a bit of a movie where it's more van damme's people making uh the movie that Jean-Claude wants to make and and yeah. I, I don't know kind of what I'm getting at other than do you think that's maybe I, I why know what you mean. I know what you mean going into the shepherd it was the same team that done undisputed too so we me Isaac JJ we knew each other and and we're coming to do a Van Damme movie and we'd already aligned in what we wanted to make and maybe Van Damme didn't didn't see it that way but we were all in unison, so it almost could feel like oh, these guys are teaming up against me, which wasn't the case, but it could have been perceived that way. Whereas on Assassination Games, I'm certainly stepping into Van Damme's world. I think he'd done a, f- a film with uh, this producer before and Stunny, great stuntman. I'd worked with Van Damme many times. And, you know, they Van Damme trusted them and they were going to do... They knew what Van Damme wanted, and and I was just happy to have the part, and uh, was concentrating more on the acting side of things than uh, in other movies. I'll be more involved in the action, but I was just happy to, you know, do what they wanted me to do. I added an action scene in there when I fight. They they uh, they get me at the uh, the courthouse there when Van Damme sets me up. That action scene, I was like, no, come on, let's try and add some action in, and, and that was added. And we also added more in a, in a sequence before that when I uh, approached the factory and stuff like that. But anyway, you know, I was there to play the part and, and do as I was told for the most part. Well, and it is interesting. You mentioned it. I mean, your character, Roland, is really kind of more of the protagonist of the movie. Van Damme's character kind of floats in and out throughout of it but you're sort of the the character that drives the plot in that movie so it's it's one of those movies that i think kind of is a little bit of the best of both worlds because whether i i think i mean i i've already mentioned i think day of reckoning is amazing but if you're whether you're a Van Damme or a Scott Adkins fan i kind of feel like assassination games is the one where everybody's going to walk away happy. Uh, you know, whichever one of the people that you're watching the movie for, 
gets enough to work with. And that's not necessarily an easy balancing act. And I know I love, I love Van Damme. I, he's one of my all time favorites, but I've also know that sometimes he's rumor is he's not necessarily the easiest guy to work with. And so if you can balance all of that in a movie, I think that's that's pretty amazing, and I, I really do. I'm with you. I actually think Assassination Games is a movie that more people need to check out of both yours and Van Damme's because I, I think it works really well. Yeah, me too, and I, it did very well for them from from what I was told, sales-wise and everything. Um, it, did, it did very well. There so, was... There was the weird title change. I actually think that the original title of Weapon, which I know is what it was released in yeah. internationally. Do you know why they called it Assassination Games? Hunger Games? No. Huh. I, I didn't know if that was because it was coming out and Games was just a big title at that point. It's as simple as this. Are you ready? You go to the markets around the world and they have a brochure. Okay? And the sale, they, they sit down there, the buyers... They start flicking through the pages and it's in alphabetical order. So by the time they've got to W for weapon, they've already spent all their money. So the idea is get your, the title of your movie to be at the top of the alphabet. Hence assassination games. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest, but yet also <laughs> blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that because I, I there's no question that I think Weapon is a stronger name. But again, yeah, most of these movies are made, and then you, you know, everybody goes to Cannes and tries to sell them on the international market. And yeah, if you're asking people to flip through books, it's the old Roger Corman thing, right? Where he would make a poster first because he knew the poster was what he needed to sell the movie, not necessarily. It didn't really matter what the movie was, as long as he had a poster, he could sell the movie. And, you know, certainly Assassination Games is better than the average Roger Corman movie, but that it's still the same concept of like, well, we got to change the title. So it's one of the first things that people see in the brochure. I mean, that's what they said to me, but I would have thought that the, the, the buyers would just go in there and say, have you got any Van Damme movies? <laughs> oh, yeah, we've got one. It's called Weapon. Do you want it? But anyway, I don't, I don't know about I don't uh, I don't go to those things. I don't really know that much about them, but. That's what they said. It makes sense. But you would also think that just Van Damme himself would be enough to get the movie exactly. sold. Exactly. Thanks again, as always, to Scott for taking time to talk to me about Assassination Games. Let's spend some time talking about Ernie Barberish. Barberish got his start as a producer, most notably on Mary Heron's great American Psycho. He made his directing debut with the really underappreciated Cube Zero. If you've never seen the Cube trilogy, you really should check it out. Vincenzo Natale's 1997 original is a tight little sci-fi horror film that's really well done. The sequel, Cube 2 Hypercube, suffers from that sequel need to go bigger, louder, faster, more, but ends up becoming less because of it. Barbarish's Cube Zero from 2004 brings the series back to basics and ends up being a worthy sequel. After Cube Zero, Barbarish directed a few more DTV films before teaming up with Van Damme for three movies, Assassination Games, Six Bullets, and Pound of Flesh. 
All three are above average for later era JCVD, with six bullets in particular being really worth checking out, especially if you're a fan of Stargate Atlantis, because that series' lead, Joe Flanagan, stars alongside Van Damme. Barbara Ish also directed the 2014 Michael Jai White film Falcon Rising, which you may remember was recommended by A.J. Muller on our Undisputed 2 episode. It's not my favorite MJW movie, but I definitely think it's worth checking out. I mean, it's got choreography by Larnell Stovall, and it co-stars uh, Brazilian capoeira master Latif Crowder. Barbarish is now directing Hallmark Christmas movies, which I say good for him. Get that Hallmark money, Ernie. My point is, he's a solid DTV director, and his name on a movie means it's probably worth checking out. The other person in Assassination Games I want to spend a minute on is Kevin Chapman, mostly so I can talk about Person of Interest, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Chapman's been a longtime character actor who's been in so many movies and TV shows, it's ridiculous. He's a classic that guy. But probably his best role is that of Detective Fusco on POI. If you've never watched POI, know that it's created by Jonathan Nolan, the unsung Nolan brother, and stars Jim Caviezel and Lost's Michael Emerson. Emerson plays a man who invented a machine that can predict crimes before they happen, and he brings on Caviezel's disgraced soldier to essentially be Batman to his oracle. The action rules, the acting is amazing, and the show goes places you will not expect. I cannot recommend Person of Interest highly enough. I mean, it also stars Taraji P. Hansen, Amy Acker, Sarah Shahi. The season three episode, The Devil's Share, is one of the best action episodes to ever air on network television. You know what? Fuck it. Stop listening and go watch Person of Interest. You are being watched. The government has a secret system. A machine that spies on you every hour of every day. I know because I built it. I designed the machine to detect acts of terror, but it sees everything. Violent crimes involving ordinary people, people like you. Crimes the government considered irrelevant. They wouldn't act, so I decided I would. But I needed a partner. I've been watching you for a long time, Mr. Reese. I know about the work you used to do for the government. I know about the doubts you came to have about that work. I think you and I can help one another. Driver's licenses, credit cards, six cover identities. Just like when you were with the agency. And all of these numbers represent lost chances. Do something. Relax. I'm on it. I was building the government a tool of unimaginable power. This other guy. This guy. He's, he's like a professor. He's got uh, glasses and a high dollar vocabulary. Why me? I know exactly everything about you, Mr. Reese. I know that the government, along with everybody else, thinks you're dead. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell anybody about you. August 2008. Too late. All right, now you've watched all five seasons of Person of Interest. Let's bring on this week's champion, F This Movie's Adam Risky. As a note, 
for whatever reason, my dumbass had Adam's levels way too hot, so he sounds terrible. I want to apologize to him, and I did the best I could to fix it in post, but it's not great. It's not his fault. It's my fault. I had my recording levels jacked up for some reason. Sorry to you all, and I do understand if you can't listen, but I hope it's not too bad for you. And please give it a try, because we have a really great conversation about this movie. So what are we waiting for? Bring me your fucking champion. Ladies and gentlemen, I am just really happy to have this week's champion. He's been a a good Twitter friend for a long time. He's one of my favorite internet writers. He's one of my favorite internet podcasters. Uh, he's part of my F This Movie family uh, and and actually was kind of the first person in F This Movie to sort of reach out and befriend me. And so I will always thank him for that. Adam Risky, man, how are you today? I'm good. Um, yeah, I am dealing with a lower back issue that I think I got from Assassination Games because it kicked my ass so hard. That you know, that's just how you get you get that Roland Flint and that Vincent Brazil combination. You can't not get your ass kicked by this movie. I mean, that's just that's just how it works. So, um, man, I'm so excited to have you. I had to ask you to come on this one because you came on an episode of the 20th Century Movie Club and mentioned that Van Damme was basically your favorite action star. Which, as soon as I was putting the guest list together on this one, I'm like, I gotta get Risky on for a Van Damme movie. I knew this was one you weren't that familiar with, but I I knew it was one that you would want to see. So I, uh, that's why I asked you to join me for this one. Um, but before we get into all of that, uh, you write for F This Movie. Tell us a little, we've had Patrick on in the past, we're gonna get Patrick on again. But tell, tell us a little bit about what you do with F This Movie. Yeah, yeah. So um, I am a writer and a podcaster on F This Movie. So um, the website has uh, a, a recurring rotation of guests. Um, I'm on the, the show usually about once a month, and we talk about just a vast array of, of movies. Usually the ones that we talk about are movies that are close to the the guest or our host Patrick's heart. So my most recent episode that I did um, was on Boiler Room, which is a movie that I've just been only mildly obsessed with for 20 years. And that uh, that podcast gave me an opportunity to explore why that was, which I never really could put an answer, uh, you know, put my finger on. Um, but yeah, I write every week there, um, just a variety of columns. I just wrapped up a year long retrospective of movies from the year 2000 next year. I'll be doing 2001, uh, films. So, um, yeah, it's really just a, a, a good place to hang and talk movies. It's my, it's my internet movie home away from home. As of recording, you and Patrick just dropped your annual, uh, Christmas special, which was a, Cage Travolta Christmas, which uh, I am part of the way through as of recording, but I actually had to stop to record with you uh, today, but I will make sure to link that episode in the show notes as well. I do also... Go ahead. Sorry, man. I was just going to say thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Always. Always. Every Wednesday, first thing I do is hit play on F This Movie. And uh, 
I do want to shout out you and uh, Rob DiCristino, one of my other very favorite people, have a recurring column called Reserve Seating that covers all sorts of all sorts of stuff. But your your Pacino retrospective has just been a delightful read for lo these many months that you guys have been doing it now. And uh, so I really I'll link I'll make sure to link to Reserve Seating as well. Uh, so you guys, everybody listening, can check that out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're in a weird period with Pacino where we overshot our our wad, so to speak, with the good stuff or too early, and now we're like really digging in deep in like the 2010s Pacino, and there's a lot of um, uh, spotty films in there, but he's always delightful in them. Yeah, the most recent one was on Salome, and that was a uh, that is not a that is not a journey I have undertaken. Although I do remember it, it also spurred you to send out a Twitter prompt of what's the most what's the indie movie you've seen in the theater that's like so indie it hurts, like it's actually like a cry for help. And I'm now going to associate that with that <laughs> Pacino Salome until the day I die. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the very definition definition of a niche movie. <laughs> um, as for those listening who don't know, I live in Utah, so I have spent a good portion of my life going to the Sundance Film Festival. So narrowing down my answer was actually incredibly difficult because I have seen so many movies, indie movies that are effectively cries for help. Uh, but I, I settled on a Gregor Rocky one because that was. That was an experience seeing that in the theater at Sundance. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. <clears throat> all right. So, Adam, as always with guests, I always like to start off by asking, uh, first and foremost, you you are somebody that is also like me. You have an affinity for uh, what some people might call the, uh, the lesser side of cinema, direct-to-video action, comedy, stuff like that. When did you first get involved in action movies? When did those that become a, a genre that you first started paying attention to? Um, I think that I ramped up to it a bit. I, I was born in the early 80s, so I was kind of weaned on adventure movies first. So it was more, um, you know, like Batman 89, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles actually probably was the first movie that I watched that had martial arts in it. Um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, The Rocketeer. So I was always kind of on the periphery of it, and I knew that this is where this was heading, where I was going to start getting into straightforward action movies. But the one that really kind of... Um, you know, kicked off my love affair with them for the rest of my life was Terminator 2, which a lot of people around my age kind of go to as their answer. But shortly thereafter, you know, that was one of those movies where I describe, you know, I describe it as like, I went in expecting the moon and I got the moon. Like it was just it delivered everything that I could have possibly wanted in an action movie. And then after that, in short order, I was watching the last boy scout and under siege and passenger 57. And, um, it just, yeah, it just became a staple in my household after that, where, you know, on a, on a good day, like I remember there was one spring break day when I was in junior in uh, late junior high, 
or early high school, I can't remember, but like I went to the video store on my bike and I rented Solo, Maximum Risk, Long Kiss Goodnight, Super Cop, and um, the and uh, there was one other one um, in there, The Glimmer Man. And I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> and even though not all those movies are are perfect when you watch like five action movies in a binge like that. It's uh, it was pretty great. Yeah. I mean, that's a hell of a day, right? Like, like, yeah, yeah, I would argue that solo is not, not great. And I'm not a big fan of the glimmer man, but when you're just in that mood and you're just, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things where, well, speaking of F this movie, like F this movie fest, you know, maybe not every movie works for you, but just that binge, that marathon, you can't help but get caught up in it and enjoy it anyway. And you're getting, you know, the long kiss goodnight, one of, in my opinion, one of the greatest action movies ever made. So no matter what, like you've already got an all time classic in that group. Um, yeah, I want to go back to something you said really quick, which is I expected the moon and I got the moon. Isn't it just so friggin' fantastic when that happens? Like, isn't that just yeah. the best movie feeling? Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. I had that, um, the, the, the movie that made me coin that term was I was doing a episode of F this movie with Patrick once. And I was talking about tales from the crypt demon night. And that was the first movie where I was like, so I, I don't know if there's been a movie that I've been more excited about in my entire life than Demon Knight. <laughs> and when I saw it, I was just like, this is exactly what I wanted it to be. And maybe even a little bit more. And yeah, you you just ride that high for months, like, you know, throughout its theatrical run and like when it's first on video and like you get your hands on your own copy of it, it's just like, almost like a year long high that you're on with a movie. Yeah. People that follow me on my personal Twitter and listen to me on Dana's show know that my all time favorite movie is Sam Raimi's Spider-Man too. And that was exactly what I thought when you said that phrase, because that was a movie. I loved Spider-Man. I loved the first Raimi Spider-Man. I was just dying in anticipation, but I also had my own head cannon for how I wanted that movie to go for the story arc. I wanted that movie to go. And then I went and I saw it and not only was it amazing, but it, it literally hit everything in my head that I wanted that movie to hit. I wanted Peter to give up being Spider-Man spoilers for Spider-Man too. I wanted him to, you know, have the sort of, redemption and, and reawakening as a hero and the way Raimi did it was better than I could have possibly even imagined and it was just I, you're right it, I literally was on a high I saw that movie three times opening day I saw it at midnight at 10 a.m and 7 p.m I just I it was one of my favorite movie experiences ever um and I and I love that feeling so I'm gonna steal that phrase from you if that's okay because I think that is such a great way to describe that experience. Oh yeah, definitely use it. Um, I had the opposite of that happen. This is kind of a funny story. When I saw the movie problem child, I was like eight and I don't think at that time I was so excited. It was probably like my most eagerly anticipated movie of summer 1990 when it came out. And I was so excited about it that I wrote a song about problem child and then when I saw it in theaters opening weekend, 
I don't know why, but I deluded myself into thinking that somehow my song was going to be in the movie. And then when it wasn't, and it was like a really crappy, like Beach Boys, um, Mike Love song on the end credits, I was like, they should have used my song. <laughs> <laughs> they And they should have. Like, <laughs> they, they absolutely should have. <laughs> yeah, it had like no melody. It was like super literal. It was just basically like me name dropping things I saw in the commercial for Problem Child. <laughs> Like, I think the title of the song was He Was a Problem Child. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I am I am a sucker for movie theme songs that work the title of the movie into the song. So yeah. I would have absolutely yeah. been a been a sucker for that. Um I, uh, I I remember years ago you and I chatting on Twitter that it was a damn shame that uh the Brian De Palma movie Casualties of War didn't use the Eric B. and Rakim Casualties of War theme song in it. It really, really would have been a... I mean, it's a good movie, but it would have been better if it had had that song in it. Um, yeah, right. it would have been completely germane to that movie. It yeah, would have fit perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally on point, right? It absolutely would have fit. Like, there's no question yeah. about it. Um, yeah. Uh, people listening right now are like, what the... But then they've also they they've also been listening, so they know this is just how I roll. So, um, all right, uh, Adam. Uh, so I mentioned I brought you on because I know you came on Dana's show and picked for the 20th Century Movie Club "Sudden Death" uh, to give us a second Jean Claude Van Damme entry into the 20th Century Movie Club. And you mentioned that Van Damme is probably your. I know. Travolta and Costner are your favorite, you know, sort of actors, but that Van Damme's probably your favorite action star of all time. When did Van Damme first kind of become a thing for you? So I knew of him before I saw one of his movies, because when I was seeing like Kindergarten Cop, I really vividly remember there was a trailer for Lionheart. And it disturbing me because like in the trailer, they show the scene at the beginning where they're pouring like gasoline on some dude. And I was just like, I'm just here to see this kindergarten movie. And like, what is this? And um, but I, I really remembered Lionheart being maybe the first movie where I knew who John Claude Van Damme was. Um, it took me a couple of years to see one of his movies, um, I probably was either Bloodsport on cable or Universal Soldier on video. But after that, I was just hooked. And it coincided with the time when I was watching a ton of action movies. And, you know, I, I saw Nowhere to Run in the theater. I, you know, begged my parents to take me to see that. And then after that, you know, I was just seeing most of his stuff theatrically so like i was street fighter and sudden death and kind of going backwards and re-watching some of the older stuff like double impact or kickboxer or cyborg um but i think universal soldier probably was the first and that also had the added benefit of it being sort of um at the time and i th i don't i don't feel this way anymore because i think universal soldier is actually the better franchise if you look at it pound for pound and movie by movie but it seemed like kind of the B side of Terminator. And I think that's obviously what they were going for. They were kind of like trying to get the same audience. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a very natural progression from T2 to Universal Soldier. Well, yeah. And I mean, especially because it's, 
you know, it was another uh, Tarloco film. I mean, a lot of the same production company. They they were clearly trying to launch a secondary franchise to go along with Terminator. Uh, so I think that that makes sense. Um, I do love, you know, Universal Soldier is actually one that I don't, that movie, not the, the series, the series I talk about quite a bit. But that that movie's not one that I talk about as much. But it, I remember seeing that one. I actually, after seeing that one in the theater, I came home, and I probably would have been. I think I was maybe in. I would have been in high school. I think when that one came out, and uh, I came home and had a cheap pair of sunglasses that I actually cut in half, and <laughs> used. I dug out old Legos and I built like a lens out of Legos and duct taped it to the sunglasses so that I could have like a replica of the like lens thing that they wear at the start of that movie. I, I had like a coat hanger uh, coming down for like a microphone and stuff like that. It was like, for those who don't know, I actually, one of my hobbies is I do replica props and, and stuff like that. And that was probably the first replica prop i ever created in my life and got the bug for it and have kind of been doing it to some varying degree ever since my whole life but that that's the first time i really remember doing something like that seeing something in a movie and being like shit i need to go home and make that and like i'm i'm like 14 it's not like i'm running around the house playing (laughs) universal soldier i just i needed i needed that set of glasses i had to have something like that after seeing that movie i i love that because like i you're you're you know a man after my own heart in the way that you are so inspired by a movie that like you have to create this merch that doesn't exist i did that with um the rescuers down under i was so into that movie when i was like seven or eight or whenever i saw it that i made um a toothbrush castle like a it's like to hold toothbrushes but i made it out of like duplos and then to make it rescuers down under i cut out the ad from the newspaper and then i just scotch taped it onto the duplos and i'm like it's a rescuers down under toothpaste toothbrush holder yeah man i mean that's the thing that is and and god love duplo and lego and and those things for giving us because i i also remember the other big one i made was after the Stallone Judge Dredd. I literally, that <laughs> night, I had to come home. I had I found some old squirt gun, used it as a handle, but then used Legos to build a housing around it to essentially create my own lawgiver. And, and, and I actually literally just took that apart earlier this year. I was going through my parents' storage and found my box of Legos, and right there on top of it was this dread lawgiver that I had built out of Legos. And I mean, I had had, like, I'd used, like, the red clear ones to make the, you know, the LEDs on the side and stuff like that. Like, now, you know, I I actually have a real, like, official, like, prop replica of that lawgiver. But man, I just, I had to have that gun. After I saw, you know, say what you will about the Stallone Judge Dredd movie, but I had to have that gun and so and nobody else had it. So I had to make it. Oh, I get it. I like that movie. Did you incorporate the double whammy into it? Does it have that functionality? It it sadly does not have that functionality, but I'm not going to lie. Even though I was like, I don't know, 
19 years old when that when that movie came out i would still run around my apartment at the time being like full <laughs> auto you know like like just hanging out of the corner and like talking to my lego lawgiver gun <laughs> that's awesome um so we got Van Damme. We obviously, uh, Universal Soldier clearly inspired you. You've been a Van Damme fan ever since. I actually do not know the answer to this question. What is your history and experience with Scott Adkins? That's a good question. I don't remember if it's Universal Soldier, Day of Reckoning, or Ninja 2. Um, which, is it called Ninja 2 or is there something? some other title for it i can't remember it kind of depends it's where it's released it's either ninja 2 shadow of a tear or just ninja shadow of a tear i always just call it ninja 2 because i think that's easier okay yeah so it um when i was a reader and uh for f this movie i think patrick recommended universal soldier day of reckoning and then I sought that out after kind of a long withdrawal from the franchise. Like I didn't see regeneration when it was first released and I did see universal soldier, the return in theaters, but that was kind of like when I tapped out on the franchise and then I gave it some space. Um, but it was either that or um, Patrick used to write, this article called Netflix, this movie where he would recommend, you know, movies that were showing on Netflix instant. That's what it was called at the time. And, um, Ninja two was one of the, was one of the, the recommendations. And like, I knew that he was a Scott Adkins fan and I had never seen any of Mr. Adkins movies. And, um, that was the first one that I sought out. And I, I liked both of them. Um, I thought that universal soldier day of reckoning, especially was like, it really blew my hair back. Cause it was doing something so different than what I expected, you know, the third or fourth or the fourth universal soldier movie to be doing at that point, it was very experimental and very ambitious. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was, I was really impressed with, with Scott Adkins, you know, performance in both of those movies. And then he would pop up and stuff like expendables two and, and, uh, yeah, he was just always like one of those faces where if he showed up in a movie, it was no matter how big or small the role was, it was, it was like, yeah, that's cool. I'm glad Scott Adkins is in this. Yeah. That's actually Patrick's love of Scott Adkins was actually one of the things that really drew me to F this movie. I, I first found you guys. I want to say it was, it was scary movie month at some four years ago or whenever. But then I did what you do when you find a website that's pretty cool. You go back and reread old stuff. And I found that he had been, you know, and I had been a diehard Adkins fan at that point for years already. And so when I found that Patrick was such a big fan, I was like, oh, okay, oh, this, these people are my people. Like, this is, this is where I need to be. This is the internet community I've been looking for my whole life. Um <clears throat> Because I also remember, you know, for his, and, and we talked about this on the episode with him, for his birthday that Erica put together, that his Twitter birthday this year, you know, he programmed Day of Reckoning. And I will, I've said this before, but I'll never forget the people like him and you and me who had seen it and knew what was coming, just hanging out on Twitter, watching everybody else have their fucking minds blown by yeah. this movie, you know, and uh, and just 
how crazy awesome and weird that movie is. So, you know, that's that's one of the ones that I I champion quite a bit. Patrick's coming back on to talk about it, but yeah, I mean, if you've got to have an intro to Adkins and it's either Ninja Two or Day of Reckoning, man, you're you're setting the bar pretty high <laughs> with those. It's 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 hard to do much better than those two movies. Yeah, they're both really fun. All right, so we are here though to not talk about either one of those. We are here to talk about the 2011 Ernie Barber's directed Assassination Games, aka Weapon which I still contend is a better title, although people listening will know why they went with the Assassination Games title, which is one of the just most movie things ever, right? Like, you've listened to that, Adam. The idea that, like, they had to go with Assassination Games because A shows up higher in the market, and so the movie's more likely to be seen is just one of those things that just destroys the magic of movie making for me. <laughs> I I kind of get it, though, because, like, I worked at Blockbuster Video, and, you know, if you have a movie in the A's, like, you know, you're going to get probably more eyeballs on it because people will either start the new release wall at the beginning or at the end. So they'll get to the A's quicker than they would get to the W's by starting at Z. So I, I, I get it. Yeah, I mean, that right, sort of the rules are, you know, and it, this even goes to, uh, for psychology, right? Recency, primacy, and repetition are things that people remember. We remember the first thing, we remember the last thing, and we remember things that we hear often, and that's it. Anything that doesn't fall into one of those categories, we forget. So I, too, used to work at Blockbuster, and it, it is. If it's in the A's or the B's, or if it's at the end of the new release wall, or if you somehow come up with a title that is in some way adjacent to a big release, like Asylum has made an entire industry out of doing, right? So you can have Transmorphers right next to Transformers. People will rent those far more than some movie that just falls in G, you know? And uh, and so it does. It, I, it makes sense. It just amuses me to no end. I, I don't know why yeah. I find it so funny, but I do. Um, yeah. <clears throat> All right, so Mr. Risky, this was a first time watch for you, and uh, I actually have not asked you what you thought of it. So, give me your overall impressions of Assassination Games. On the whole, I enjoyed it. Um, there's a lot of things in it that I I appreciate. I have a couple of gripes, but not anything where it tips the scale into being a movie that I think is just okay or I don't like. I still like the movie. Um, I thought that it's a really good Van Damme vehicle. I appreciated um, that he kind of was doing Denzel Washington in The Equalizer like two years before Denzel Washington in The Equalizer. Um, it also kind of reminded me of like a man on fire type of performance. And it fit really well with that period of his career where it was post-JCVD and he was doing a bigger mixture of dramatic work within his action films. And um, I really liked his segments of the movie. Scott Adkins is really great, too. I liked that um, it felt like more of a two-hander than most JCVD movies. Um that we saw. And usually, it, and it was a better one, too. It was like you could tell that Van Damme and Adkins enjoyed working off of each other and they kind of had trust in one another. Whereas maybe if I'm watching 
like double team, for example, it, it, it the, the pairing of Dennis Rodman and Jean-Claude Van Damme doesn't like net the best results. Um, so I, I liked all of that. Um, I was happy to see Kevin, I think it's Kevin Conway show up. Um, he was a character actor um, that I was a fan of who was in a lot of movies in the early 2000s. Like um, he was one of the enforcers for Sean Penn and Mystic River. And he was in Two for the Money with Mr. Pacino. And uh, he was in um, In Good Company and stuff like that. He was always just kind of like one of the guys in those movies. So it's to see him as being Scott Adkins handler was cool. Um, and I thought, let the... me, let me just pause you right there. Oh, uh, just to correct yeah. it's, it is, it's Kevin Chapman. And that was actually oh. one of my high points too. Cause I agree with you. Cause for me, I will always remember him. I don't know if you ever watched this show, but he was Lionel Fusco in person of interest, which is, I think one of the greatest TV shows of all time. And so I had seen this around the same time person of interest started, but I forgot he was in it. So when I rewatched it for this, I was like, Oh shit, it's Fusco. And he is just, he's such a great character actor. He's so good. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for letting me know. Cause I think I was saying the voice of Batman and not <laughs> saying the actor's correct name. So um, yeah, I don't want to make that mistake, but yeah, overall I liked the movie a lot. I thought that the, the villain was appropriately evil and, uh, you know, a good, uh, you know, bad guy to root against, which is key to movies like this. Um, and I thought that the plot was, it was dark and it was, it was interesting and complex enough with like kind of double dealings and things like that without being too somber or over serious, which I think a lot of movies of this ilk can kind of fall into. And um, it found a good balance of being kind of pulpy and fun while also taking the material seriously and not veering into camp. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to echo pretty much everything you said there. You know, I, I think that uh, I particularly like Van Damme in this. I think he plays off Adkins really well. I think they're for such a serious movie, the fact that they managed to get some kind of buddy cop style witty banter uh, is, is I think some much needed levity. It, it doesn't actually feel out of place. It instead feels like some much needed levity. Like uh, there's a scene where Adkins is interrogating this guy and Van Damme ends up killing him. And Adkins is like, why'd you do that? I was working on a plan. And Van Damme goes, if you're going to have a partner, you're going to have to learn to communicate better. You know, and I'm just, and it's, it's, it's not like overplayed. It's just enough to give us some of this chemistry that we really need from the two of them to buy that their story arcs are going to go the way they're going to go. Um, so that's one of the things I really do like about it. I really, really like Van Damme in this one. Um, I think the scene where he beats up, the the abuser in the hallway is just you're you're right it's straight out of like equalizer or man on fire right he wants nothing to do with this problem but it's like you're disturbing me and the guy won't stop and so van damme just you know does his van damme thing on him and that obviously sets off a whole path for him in this movie but just the way he plays I, I mentioned this in in a, another episode that's actually going to come out after this, but one of the things that I think 
Scott Adkins is at his best when he's playing a Mad Max type, which is a guy who does not want to be involved but just can't help himself. And Van Damme's actually playing that role in this one. He's doing very much the, I'm closed off, I'm not a hero, I'm a bad guy. God damn it, I can't watch this happen. Like, I, I just, I can't. My ethical code is too strong. I cannot watch this happen. I cannot not help this guy get revenge for his wife. I cannot, I can't not protect this girl. I have to do these things. And Van Damme plays that so well in this movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He really does. He's um, yeah. I, I like that you could read him in a number of ways. So like using that example that you, you just gave with, you know, beating up the, the pimp that lives next door to him, like just as much as him, wanting to help out the woman um, that's being abused by this, you know, terrible man. Um, You could tell that it's almost just too out of a matter of convenience. He just doesn't want the distraction. He doesn't want this guy to feel like he can roll over Van Damme and like take over his, because there's sort of like a, an insinuation at the beginning that, you know, hey, I'm the pimp and I'm going to take this whole hallway and like there's nothing you can do about it. And Van Damme is very quick to, you know, stand his ground and establish himself, even for selfish reasons. So there's a lot of, you know, uh, complexity to like why he's doing what he's doing. Well, and it's one of the things that I love so much in one of the things that I talk about a lot on this show that I love so much about the best of DTV action is the best DTV action movies manage to put those layers in there. They're not necessarily readily apparent, and they certainly don't beat you over the head with them the way, say, an Oscar bait-type movie might. But if you know what you're looking for, it's there. And he's giving a really multi-layered performance in this movie because you're totally right. Like, when we first get it, he's just annoyed. Like, it's just irritation because when he's in his apartment and not on a job, he wants peace and quiet. Like, you can even see it in his apartment. He's got his turtle, and he's got his piano, and he's established a quiet, safe space to go. And then this stupid, you know, aggressively violent pimp just messes of that up. And so it's like... Yeah, you're 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 messing with my flow. You're messing with my feng shui here, man. That's not okay. But then of course he's also gets part of his conscience awakened by this this girl, this victim, uh who I who I should give credit uh for. Her name is uh Marija Karan. I she's I'm probably mispronouncing that, but uh she gives I think a for a relatively thankless role and when we get to some low points, I'm going to have some real problems with her character, but I think she gives a pretty great performance for what she's given to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she definitely, um, yeah, does what she can with the part. And like you said, you know, this kind of factors into one of my low points with the movie also, but you know, she's, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I think I, I, it, it's interesting in the sense that she's sympathetic, but she does it in ways that are, and she kind of, you know, is there to draw out the 
more human elements of the Van Damme character, but the and the way she does it is kind of in like a misdirect way where she like knows how to take care of his turtle better than he does and shows him how to do it. And, you know, in a lesser movie, maybe she would have given like this big speech about like, you know, I was just living my life happily. And then like, you know, my parents were killed. And then like, I got, you know, the only place I could turn to was this pimp and stuff like that. Like, thankfully we're, we kind of avoid that more contrivance um, backstory from her and I do appreciate that it's as simple as you know hey I appreciate what you're doing for me let me do something for you even though it's very tiny in terms of a gesture well and and I love that again because DTV action has to be efficient because they don't have the money we literally get the one line where she says I want to get out of the life and get out of this city and that's all you yeah. need man that tells you every you don't need a big long speech it just it so efficiently tells you everything you need to know about her. And one of the other things I love, like you mentioned, multi-dimensional here is you can really read their relationship, I think, in two ways. You can read it as a romantic relationship, but you can also sort of read it as more of a big brother type of relationship because uh, – you know, Van Damme's very standoffish with her and, and very respectful with her. And in a lesser movie, you know, you're going to get a gratuitous sex scene out of it. You're going to get... And, and don't get me wrong, she's certainly objectified plenty in the movie, but you at least don't get a lot of that. You get just instead this sense that he really does just, against his better judgment, want to protect this girl. Um, and And so I think there's, again... That's where there's some more creativity in this script than what you might initially expect from a movie called Assassination Games. Yeah, and and also like kind of going along with like the Denzel Washington Man of Fire equalizer part, like this kind of archetype of the the lone assassin and the guy closed off to the world, they're usually pretty sexless men. So like even though she, you know, her profession is as a is a sex worker, like it's something that just isn't a part of his life. Like he just, so he, he doesn't feel like he needs to, you know, make a move on her or anything like that. And it's kind of, like you said, it's, it's something that doesn't need to be in the movie. So I'm glad it's not in the movie. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and then we obviously get that contrasted with, uh, Bianca Bree, AKA Bianca Van Varenberg, AKA Bianca Van Dam. uh, also getting, unfortunately, a relatively thankless role as a coma patient for the entire movie because she plays Scott Atkins' role in Flint's comatose wife, who is his motivation for doing everything. Uh, and what I do like about Atkins' performance, and this is unfortunately because Bianca is in a coma for the whole movie, that relationship is entirely on him to sell it. And I feel like he sells it uh, for me at least and again admittedly i'm super biased i actually think he's a terrific actor uh so i think he sells that relationship uh as well yeah i would i would agree with that um it's a tough it's a tough role for her because she just has to be still and like <laughs> just be there as kind of a, a motivation board so to speak um for Scott Atkins' performance, but yeah, he, he definitely 
makes it internalized and then acts it out in a natural way. So I, I it's it is a good performance from both a dramatic perspective as well as an action perspective. Well, and I think we get a really good payoff for me, at least a very cathartic payoff when he finally, you know, the very end when he finally has Polo and they're in front of her bed and he says, uh, apologize to her louder. I can't hear you. And Polo says, you know, I, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then Roland says, it's just one problem. She can't hear you. And, you know, I like I, I found that to be incredibly uh, cathartic for an action movie, you know, sort of bad guy gets his comeuppance arc. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you liked that or not. What were your thoughts on that? I I didn't like it all that much, but that's just because I'm a child of under siege. And I always am like, he should push his thumb in his eye and then stab him in his head and then throw him through a TV. <laughs> it, so, is, it is hard I, to beat keep the faith Stranix. Like it's really hard to beat keep the faith Stranix. Yeah, so I mean, like, I, I'm i just a goofball who likes the over-the-top violence of, like, the early 90s action, but I obviously, like, it's much more organic to the story for him, too. Yeah, Blows I mean... out I, the, the, the bad guy in the way that he does in this movie. You'd, you'd agree, at least narratively, it, it works well oh, yeah. for the movie. Because, um, yeah, because mine is, mine is uh, absolutely... It's Under Siege 2, Nobody Beats Me in the Kitchen, I'm not sure that there's a better kiss off line than nobody beats me in the kitchen in under siege Two. So I get it. I'm with you. I understand that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just a personal preference thing, but I think, um, I, I, I think the way that he, he finishes the bad guy off is it makes total sense and it, it's effective for the movie. Well, and given just how fucking shitty and brutal and awful Polo is in this movie, I mean, he's a nasty, nasty bad guy in this movie. Yeah. Um, and so I do get what you're saying in that he's so nasty, you almost want a little more comeuppance. But uh, I do also, I, I appreciate it because so much of this movie has been about, it's really interesting because her character, her role is really unflattering and unsatisfying, but her character is such a motivating factor in this movie that, that I, I did like that. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, uh, we've talked a little bit about what we like about it, but let's talk about a couple of other really high points. What are, what are some things, some other things that we maybe haven't mentioned that you really liked in the movie? Um, I liked the, the gun that they had that they used in a couple points in the movie where, like, and at the end of the movie, he was using it sort of like as this guided, you know, machine gun to, to finish off the bad guys. I thought that was a cool device. Um, so I, I like that. Yeah. Check out um, Chekhov's robot gun. And that was totally yeah. a Chekhov's robot gun, right? You knew that was coming yeah. back at the end. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me of the movie, the Jackal, but like put to better use <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, and just kind of in general, just the vibe of the movie. I thought that it was, uh, I, I liked, um, i trying to think of, there, there's this movie War with Jet Li and Jason Statham that I like that this kind of reminded me of, where it's, you know, 
kind of co-leads of the action movie and it's sort of set in terms of like double dealings within like a crime family and things like that so um and there's a revenge element so i think just tonally um i like the movie it it was really easy to watch and it was it was a fun watch so those are probably more my high points i didn't have like standout sequences necessarily but i thought that there was a lot of consistency that it was like always pretty good yeah i mean i think that's that you know we'll talk about whether we'll recommend this movie or not but that's definitely i think if i had to sum this up it's just it's pretty good it's just a consistently well done movie it's not gonna blow your socks off it's not you know, it's certainly if if I was doing a ranking of Scott Adkins movies, it's not in my top five. It's probably not even in my top ten, but it's it's consistently entertaining. I do want to uh, bring up that I think after The Shepherd, fans looking for a Van Damme Adkins fight are going to be more satisfied by the fight that they get in this one than they may have been in The Shepherd. And I I think even then they would be, just from a pure fight standpoint, their fight in Day of Reckoning. I think this is objectively, uh, from a sort of a technical standpoint, probably their best fight of the four movies they've done together. Um, Because it comes in the middle of the movie, and it's it's where they, you know, and it's, you know, I've always argued one of my sort of theses on this show is every fight should tell a story. It should have its own narrative within the fight. And this is one that I think really does because it really tells the story of these two very disparate people uh, coming together for sort of a shared cause through punching each other in the face. And I'm never not going to be a sucker for that in a movie like like if. If if you have a movie where boys become boys because they've beat the shit out of one another, like going back to they live, like I am I am in one hundred percent on that. And while I wish the fight in this one was longer, I think it's well shot. I think it shows off both their skills pretty well. I think it's pretty damn solid. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with everything you said there. Um and I'm going to second what you said about the Chekhov's uh, robot gun. That was, uh, that was pretty great. Uh, you know, one of the things I think that separates this from the shepherd is so the shepherd, and, and as you know, I talked to Scott about this a little bit. The shepherd was Isaac Florentine. It was JJ Perry. It was basically Scott's team. And this one was entirely uh, more or less Jean-Claude's team. You know, he has worked with Ernie Barberish on, more movies than I can even count. Uh, the stunt team was basically people that he had worked with before. And I, I'm thinking that that might be why this whole movie feels a little more comfortable and why Van Damme's maybe uh, a lot more willing to share the spotlight with Scott, because this is a true co-lead movie. I like neither one of them really, I think gets, any more time than the other. I think they're both, and even the ending when they're both taking out the final two targets, you know, it's like it cuts back and forth between the two of them and they both get to just be cool. Um, and so I, I, I really like that because this one feels like a natural co-starring, uh, or co-lead movie for both of them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
All right. Well, let's. Oh, sorry, still had it on mute. All right, let's uh, let's talk about we've we've hinted around a couple of them. Let's talk about some low points. Adam, what didn't you like about the movie? There are two things that stood out to me. One is um, a filmmaking thing, and one is more of a script thing. So the script thing is that, and I wasn't really aware of this phrase until recent years, but now it's kind of something i don't know it it doesn't always stick out to me but can i can i i was gonna just say can i guess the phrase and can (laughs) is it gonna be fridging yeah yeah and truth be told i'm not somebody who just says like outright if there's fridging in a movie then it's a bad movie or it should be something where i should wag my finger at it but in this case it's pretty blatant fridging um and I'm okay with the Scott Adkins fridging more than I'm okay with the Van Damme fridging. Cause the Van Damme fridging was maybe the one point in the movie where I went from like, kind of just, you know, this is a comfortable movie to watch to like, where did that come from? And I don't like that. And it made me, um, I don't know. I mean, like they obviously like they could have taken the girl hostage or something and they had to save the girl or, or something. But like what they did was straight out of something like Sicario or like a really dark, like cartel movie. And I didn't feel like this movie necessarily, even though, you know, the villains a nasty bit of business, I didn't feel like it, it felt out of place with the rest of the violence in the movie. Like this felt like one step beyond of, me being entertained by it. So I was a little put off by that. Um, And then the second thing was, I hate the color grading. Um, I, I, it's not just this movie. There's like live free or die hard. I remember had this too, where everything had like, kind of like, it was either like a blue hue to it or a green hue. And in assassination games, everything kind of feels like it's got like golden sort or sunlit, um look to it and i just find it very aesthetically um displeasing to look at so no matter how much i liked assassination games i would almost say like i'd be less willing to watch in the future just because i don't want to look at it so i'm looking at my notes uh because i took notes when i was re-watching this and i know the structure of this show so i have highs and talked about stuff like that mm-hmm in my lows, I have literally two words. Well, not two words, but two things. One, yeah. fridging. Like, literally, <laughs> I just wrote fridging. And two, this movie looks like piss. So yes. <laughs> I'm, <Thank you. laughs> I'm, I'm going to completely agree with you. I want to spend a little more time. We'll get to the movie looks like piss in a second. But um, I want to spend a little more time on the fridging because, yeah, for people listening, if you don't know what the term fridging is, it was initially coined by Gail Simone, a uh, comic book writer, as a criticism of a issue of Green Lantern where Kyle Rayner becomes the new Green Lantern and it ends with his girlfriend being uh, he's debating on whether he wants to be the new Green Lantern he doesn't really want to and he comes home and finds that the bad guy has killed his girlfriend and shoved her in his refrigerator and it motivates him to become the hero that he was always supposed to be and Simone coined the phrase as a trope to 
uh, describe a female character whose sole reason for existence is to motivate change in a hero predominantly by undergoing a horrific tragedy. And it's not an automatic deal breaker. I'm with you, Adam. It's not an automatic deal breaker for me, but it's a lazy trope and it has to be used accordingly. Roland's wife isn't as much, I think, fridging because that is the narrative of the movie and that is his entire character arc because she's already in the coma when we start the movie. And so I think that is probably why I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that's probably why that one doesn't bother you as much. What happens to October is unbelievably mean, unbelievably nasty. And I think actually undercuts the narrative art that they had been building to because, because of that line where she says, all I want to do is get out of the life and get out of the city. And I never want to rewrite the movie, right? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta review the movie that you're given, not, not the one that you wish it would be. But I also have to point out that that arc works so much better if it ends with Van Damme leaving her a duffel bag full of cash and a note that says, go live your life, be who you want to be. What they do to her, and for those who haven't seen it, and we spoil the shit out of these movies, you know, the bad guy Polo ends up torturing her and slitting her throat, and Van Damme finds her on his bed in his apartment with her throat slit. And it doesn't fit the movie. It doesn't fit the, the character arcs. It is a grotesque narrative misstep in this movie that I will be blunt almost completely takes me out of the movie. That's how much I fucking hate that they do it in this. I uh, I know some people listening don't agree with me about my, you know, the way I review movies and the way I think that these things matter and things like representation matter. I don't care. That is a thing that keeps Assassination Games from being a great movie. It was a horrible misstep. It was a bad narrative choice. It's quite frankly offensive and it pisses me off. And it's one of the things that does keep me from going back to this movie again and again because I like so much of the rest of this movie. Uh, but it, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up if you didn't. It is one of the most blatant examples of fridging. It's bullshit and it never should have been done in this movie. Yeah, and it, it just feels so out of, like you said, it feels so out of step with the rest of the movie, which is sort of, a, it's a fun action movie, but it's hard to have fun when you see something like that. Like, because it's not, like, I or, or even, you know, if it's the way it's depicted, too. It's like they almost did too good of a job on, like, the makeup effects of it. Like, if they just showed Van Damme walking in and you just saw his reaction, but you didn't see what happened to October. That would have been enough. Well, and that, um, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. Sorry, I totally cut you off. Go ahead and finish what you were oh, going to say. Oh, no, but, but then I was just going to say, like, but then when you see, like, what happened to her, it's so graphic that you said that her throat was slit. Like, I didn't want to go back and, like, look again, 
but I was just like, did did her hands and feet and head get cut off too? Like it looked like appendages were removed. Like they were like there, but they were like cut off. So I don't know. It was really like, it took me out of the movie in a way that like, like you said, it until I forgot about it again, maybe like a few minutes later, because we were on to the next thing. Um, it broke the, the connection I had with the film being fun. Well, and so here's how I know that it's, and I'm not going to ascribe motive or intent to the filmmakers. I'm going to ascribe results of their product because I don't know Ernie Barberish. I don't know. This is written by uh, Aaron Rashawn Thomas. I don't know them. I'm not going to ascribe any motivation to them, but this is why the end result is misogynist bullshit because Kevin Chapman also gets tortured and killed, and we don't see the end result of that. We get Polo telling Roland, oh yeah, he, he, you know, he sang like a schoolgirl after I got done with him, but we don't see the end result of that. But we see in full bloody glory the end result of what they did to October, and that shit will never not piss me off. I, I know yeah. I'm losing listeners on this. I don't give a shit. That shit will never not piss me off. Um, because I'm with you. It, it, it made it so hard to enjoy the rest of the movie. And, and you're, you're totally right. Again, I don't want to rewrite the movie, but we didn't need to see that. We could have seen Roland or not Roland, uh, Vincent. We could have seen Van Damme's reaction and gotten the gist of what happened. But I also don't like it because I feel like it undercuts their own narrative because the whole idea is Roland is seeking revenge. Vincent is learning how to be a protector, how to be a supporter, how to be a caregiver. And by going that way with the story, it undercuts that arc to where now he's just seeking revenge too. So he doesn't even get to kill Polo because only one of them can actually get revenge on Polo. And so Vincent's arc is actually not complete. We get the scene at the end where he lights a candle for her because she told him to and stuff like that. And that that's, it's sweet and it's a touching and well done scene, but it, it, it's, it's a filmmaker and a screenwriter trying to be too clever by fucking half and not just actually recognizing the story that they were trying to tell. And as a result of that, creating some unbelievably misogynist bullshit. Like there's just yeah. no way around it. Yep. Yeah. Well said. All right. On that note, let's switch to a little bit uh, more fun topic to talk about. Why was this entire movie shot in a bucket of urine? <laughs> <laughs> I hate this look like they did the, they do this in um, I think it was Spectre also where I made a joke where I'm like, it looks like it was shot inside like a glass of scotch. And I'm like, why is this like what anybody thinks audiences want to look at for two hours? But yeah, it definitely I mean, and, you know, it was made in, I think, Louisiana and Romania. And Bul I understand Bulgaria, like, Louisiana and Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Yeah. Okay. And Bulgaria. I understand like, you know, a lot of productions like that are direct to video go to Bulgaria and go to some of, you know, so, some countries internationally as 
you know, it's it's more cost effective to to shoot there. Um, the locales aren't always the most aesthetically pleasing to look at, but then when you add rundown buildings with piss color timing, <laughs> it's it's I I don't I don't get it. I don't know why they do that, but um, yeah, maybe they're they think it's gonna add a level of grit to it, or it just will make it seem, I don't know, more artistic, but whatever the desired effect, I would love to know what, what that was, because like you said, it just looks like we're watching a movie through a bucket of piss. Well, and that's the thing is as somebody who watches a lot of DTV movies, you know, there's plenty like undisputed three was shot in Bulgaria and that movie's gorgeous, you know, and, and uh, even the shepherd was shot in Bulgaria and that looks great. Like, this was a, for a time in his career, Ernie Barberish, who, for those who don't know, he's now making a living making uh, Hallmark Christmas movies. So kudos to him. Get get oh, you, amazing. get you that Hallmark Christmas money, buddy. Get you that Hallmark Christmas money. Uh, but there was a time in his career where he was working with Van Damme and he was, that was just a look that he was making. And this is the worst of all of his movies. He did another one with Van Damme the next year called Six Bullets, which covers very similar ground to this movie, but I think it's actually better in spite of the fact it doesn't have Scott. So, Risky, I do recommend you check that one out because I, I think if you liked this one, you'll like Six Bullets as well. Uh, but, okay. yeah, yeah, it just looks awful. It, it just, it, it's so unpleasant to the eye to watch this movie uh, because just everything, the color grading and, and everything is just so I, I, offensive is really the best word I can come up with <laughs> offensive to thine eyes. And a lot of the other directors Van Damme was working with at the time had a similar thing. So I know it was just part of early two thousands DTV. And I almost wonder if maybe Van Damme liked the look a bit, but then it's like also, yeah, Day of Reckoning was shot in Louisiana, too, and that doesn't look like piss. That's, like, one of the most... I mean, it's very stylish, but for that style, it's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen in my life. It's unbelievably well shot. So this was clearly an aesthetic choice that I will never understand <laughs> and never agree with, uh, because it's just... yeah. yeah. And I'm not and I'm not completely opposed to like color grading in movies because like you could see, you know, somebody like Michael Mann, like really like doing a great job with like kind of soft blues and stuff like that in heat. So, I mean, like there's certain color choices and like tones that you can pick that really will enhance a mood and kind of, you know, be cool to look at from a photography standpoint. But this was just not one of them. It was the complete opposite. Yeah, look at the way uh, look at the way Panos Cosmatos used reds in Mandy, right? Oh, you can that's a great example. You can absolutely go extreme on color grading, and I'm not going to have a problem with it. But the biggest thing for me is those deep reds in Mandy help convey the story. The piss yellows in this do nothing. <laughs> To, to help this story. They don't help this movie in the slightest. They just make it look like garbage. 
Um, and that that is why I do not understand it because there's no narrative purpose. And on top of that, like you said, you can always count on somebody like Michael Mann to use blues. Why do you pick a color grading that is just so... Like, Miami Vice is a movie that I know a lot of people love it. I like it. I respect it. But the blues in that that he uses, they're soothing. They they don't... They're, they're pleasant to look at. The color grading in this is just so uncomfortably ugly <laughs> that I just... I don't... Yeah. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Yep. Yep. I don't, I don't get it either. All right. Well, I think we've, we, we've been going on an hour here. I think we've kind of, uh, talked assassination games to death. Um, so I always, uh, have to ask risky. Would you recommend assassination games to somebody? Yes, I would. Um, overall, I think what it does well supersedes what it doesn't do what what doesn't do well i'm going to agree with that this one's going to get a pretty solid recommendation from me if somebody told me they wanted to watch it i would 100 percent warn them about the color grading and the <laughs> fridging beforehand but other than that i think everything else about this movie's pretty terrific i think it's a lot of fun i think van damme and adkins play so well together uh, and and they're both really bringing strong work to the screen in this one. Um, and so if you're a fan of them, as I know you and I are, of them as actors, not just action stars, uh, I think this one's worth checking out for that because I think they're doing pretty great acting work in this movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um if anybody is listening and has like a tube TV where you can easily change color and hue on your TV, just at like using your thumb over like that little wheelie thing under the TV, try it with this movie and let us know if the, you change the color timing on your own TV, if it looks better. Yeah. I would say if you, if you block out the green, right. Cause that's an RGB wheel. So if you block out the green, that should hopefully take out most of that piss yellow. And, uh, and hopefully if, if I was actually good at video editing, I might actually do that and re like just as an experiment, recolor correct this movie and see if it, if it had more gray hues and blue tones, see what it would actually look like. Cause I think it would look a hell of a lot better. <laughs> Fascination games, special edition. I'm on board. Yeah. 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 The fan edit of assassination games. I'll get right on that, yeah. you know, cause I have so much yeah. time. Um, all right. Uh, well, Adam, normally I ask people for their Adkins recommendations, but, uh, I think that typically I've had so many people make recommendations at this point, you know, it's going to be a lot of the same ones. If there's one that's off the beaten path that you want to recommend, let me know. Um, but otherwise I'm going to ask you to give me like three Van Damme recommendations so that people can check out his stuff. Um, I'll, I'll give you some that I think are kind of underseen. So I would start with, um, nowhere to run which is just, it's kind of an early version of sensitive Van Damme um, and character-based Van Damme that it was kind of um, unusual for him at that stage in his career when he was doing studio work, but I think it's a really solid movie and a 
I, it's part of the action subgenre I call Gone Country, where it seems like every action hero had like a home front or the last stand or fire down below, where you know they're they're in the heartland and you know cleaning up the streets from there as opposed to like an urban setting. So I, I really like Nowhere to Run. Um, I'm a big fan of Enemies Closer, which is a villain Van Damme movie. Um, just really, just kind of a fun solid DTV action flick. And um, for a third one, um, I'll go with, uh, let's see. All right. I know it's not good, but I have a lot of, if you're in the right mood for it, I think you could have fun with Universal Soldier The Return. It's super goofy and dumb, but I feel like Van Damme is kind of, having a good time while also sort of you kind of get the sense that he knows that the jig is almost up in terms of his theatrical work. And he's kind of like having one last hurrah with it. So he's not taking it too seriously. So uh, I'll go with those three as kind of underseen ones. So I'm going to take each one of those recommendations in turn because I love all three of them. Um, I was just on uh, a little while ago, Matt Bledsoe's Film Feast podcast, where we gave our top five Van Dams, but then we also made some honorable mentions. And uh, he recommended Nowhere to Run. Uh, and I, too, am a fan of that movie written by Joe Esterhaus, which is just never not going to yeah. be weird to me. But uh, I like that one because that really is... I think sort of the first of, like you said, sensitive, sad-eyed Van Damme, right? Which, uh, and Rosanna Arquette's terrific in it. It's got the great Ted Levine as the the villain in it. Oh, uh, yes. I yep. think it's, I think it's a lot of fun. It's not, I, I remember I didn't love it when it came out. I saw that one in the theater and I didn't love it when it came out because I was just expecting something more I was you know he was coming off of double impact he was just about to release hard target that and hard target came out the same year um and so I was really expecting something more now decades later with a much greater appreciation of the oeuvre of Van Damme and the characters he likes to play I have a much higher appreciation for that movie because it's clearly that's who he wants to play in movies. He doesn't want to be Chance Boudreaux, you know, in spite of the fact his mama took one. Uh, he doesn't want to be <laughs> Chance Boudreaux or Max Walker. He likes to be the sensitive, sad guy who is forced into action against his will. I mean, he just, he fucking loves those roles. And uh, and that's really the first time he, he kind of played that role. Um Enemies Closer, I recommended on Matt's podcast because, oh my God, Van Damme in that movie is just delightful. I uh, I wish Tom Everett Scott and Orlando Jones had a little more action cred so we didn't get so much obvious doubling from them in it. And I wish, I, I don't always agree with this complaint about Peter Hyams, but Enemies Closer is one where I wish he had some damn set lights on uh, for that movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, but I I think Van Damme in that movie is just... It might be in my top five favorite Van Damme. It's not my top five favorite Van Damme movies, but it might be in my top five favorite Van Damme performances. He is 
on a whole different level in that movie. Yep. Um, and then I'm glad you brought up Universal Soldier of the Return because I want to take a little minute to talk about that one uh, because that is a movie that a lot of people don't like. I happen to like it. Uh, first of all, it's got the almighty Michael Jai White and their fight at the end of that movie is just absolutely terrific. And I have a real affinity for that because knockoff, you know, and I've mentioned this before, but everybody knows Van Damme had well-documented struggles with addiction and really bottomed out on knockoff, ending up in a hotel room thinking he was having a heart, a heart attack. And that was when he decided to get clean and Universal Soldier The Return was the first movie he made after he he sort of got clean. And if you watch Knockoff and Universal Soldier The Return back to back, you can see it. Like, you can see he's just happier and healthier making mm-hmm. Universal Soldier. And as a, as a guy who's been a Van Damme fan for damn near his entire life, that movie's always going to have a soft spot for me because I really spent a lot of the late 90s wondering if he was going to die. And Universal Soldier and then Legionnaire, which he did right after, were the two where I was like, okay, we might we might actually have Van Damme around for a while. So I know that's mushy, but I will always have a soft spot for that movie because of that. Yeah, no, I, I have a soft spot from it from pretty similar regard. Um I didn't say this. I, I kind of purposely avoided saying this, but it it is sort of at the heart of what I I'm thinking with Universal Soldier, part of the return, part of it is just you could see the humbleness in him, and it's endearing, and it sort of was the first time where he was ever really the underdog, like in terms of like an audience and movie star relationship, and it might be the movie where he started to separate himself from the pack for me in terms of favorite action stars, because I knew like in my heart, I'm like, I'm really rooting for this guy in a way that I'm not with like Steven Seagal or like Bruce Willis or some of his contemporaries from the early nineties that were like, you know, the go-to guys that could sell a movie in theaters on their action cred. Well, and that's a perfect way to describe it. I have such an investment like emotionally in Van Damme. I mean, Steven Seagal is a, a well-known reprehensible piece of shit, you know, and Bruce Willis is just lazy. And, and I have, I have such an emotional investment in Van Damme as a person. I just want, I want him as a person to be happy and healthy and successful and live a long life and, that really is kind of a turning point in his career and his life. And so, yeah, I, I just, I'm never going to be able, like objectively I can point out all the problems in that movie. Bill Goldberg is fucking terrible in it, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just never going to be able to hate that movie because that was kind of a turning point for me. And, and I'm with you. That is one of the movies where I started to feel like, I remember watching double team and thinking, Oh, he's looking better here. Um, you know, maybe he's gotten clean and then seeing knockoff and going, oh, no, he's not clean. He's not sober. He is going to be dead. He is like doing Mickey Rourke levels of cocaine like he is going to be dead soon. And so mm. I will just always have 
that soft spot for Universal Soldier the Return of like now he looks clean, now he looks sober, now he looks healthy. And uh you know, and pretty much every movie I've ever seen since I don't know his if he's relapsed or not. I'm not going to speculate. But he's always looked healthy, even though he looks sad and there's the miles on that face that do so much acting for him now. I've never felt like, oh, we're going to lose Van Damme since that movie. So glad you recommended yeah. that. Love it, man. Love the recommendations. Um, All right. Adam Risky, plug some shit. Where can people find you? Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Risky Adam. Um, that's where I retweet all of the podcasts and articles that I do. Um, or you can visit fthismovie.com. That's the letter F, thismovie.com. And you can find all the content there. Um, this week, actually the day of this recording, we dropped our holiday episode with me and Patrick Bromley where we talk about um, it's a, rep a reprise of an earlier show that we did this year where we looked at the DTV careers of John Travolta and Nicolas Cage together. So it was the DTV face-off. And now our holiday episode is DTV um, face-off holiday edition, where we look at Look Who's Talking Now, The Family Man, and Trapped in Paradise as the holiday entries of those two men's filmographies. So um, visit, us, visit us there. We also have our end-of-the-year episodes coming up. Um, so next week will probably be the underrated, overrated, and ugly of 2020 in film. And then the week after that would be um, our favorite movies of 2020. And it's uh, going to be interesting to hear to hear the guys' lists. Um, it was uh, such an odd year in terms of, like, not just reactions to the movies being watched, but, like, who was watching what, because it's just sort of the wilderness out there in terms of movie selections. Yeah, I've been – and. Uh, this is dropping a couple weeks after the new year. So those episodes are only a couple weeks old folks. I will again, make sure to link them in the show notes. Please check them out because, uh, I'm not doing this without F this movie and the support and the love and the kindness I have gotten from you and Patrick and Erica and Rob and everybody involved, uh, in there. Um, all of you guys have been nothing but supportive to me and I, I love you all to death for it. Uh, 2020 has been such a weird year, man. I'm putting my I'm putting my year in less together and uh yeah, I'm I'm excited to hear that episode. Yeah, after we're done recording, let me know what's on your list cuz I'm I I'm trying to catch up on some stuff that I might not have seen for end of year and yeah, my list like right now my number one movie would be like something that Play, was supposed to play at South by Southwest, but then never happened because there was no South by Southwest. And it's like, that's my number one movie of the year. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's something that I doubt anybody's heard of. So it's, it's one of those years. Yep. Nope. I, I am really struggling because I typically do a best of overall. And then I do like a best action and I'll be honest, yeah. I'm really struggling with the best action. I'm having a hard time scraping together 10, I've seen a lot of great action movies this year, but they haven't come out in 2020. So I'm, I'm really struggling yeah. to scrape those together, but we'll talk off air about that. Adam, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Um, as a preview folks, uh, I mentioned it earlier. Adam is a giant Kevin Costner fan. So we're going to get him back on to talk criminal, uh, which is uh, one that I 
I wasn't initially going to do a full episode on because Scott literally sits behind a computer for the whole movie. But I, <laughs> I think that, that you and I can have a lot of good discussions about that movie, regardless of Scott's role in it. So, um, I'm going to get you back on for that one. That'll be, uh, you know, a few months down the road, but Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the invite and, um, you know, wish you the best of luck with the remainder of the series. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Sounds good. And that will do it for this week's episode. Sorry again about the audio. Thanks to Adam for joining me and thanks again to Scott for his time. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Hibachi Justice. You can find my work with the Dana Buckler Show at Linktree slash Dana Buckler, where we talk about all sorts of movies, almost none of them Scott Adkins related. You can find the show on Twitter at Adkins Podcast and Instagram at Adkins Undisputed. You can email me at AdkinsUndisputedPod at Gmail. Next week, we're taking on El Gringo, and I'm super excited to have next week's champion, Rachel Hoschild from the Talk Film Society here to talk that one with me. So next time, make sure to bring your ears, your podcast app of choice, and your fucking champion to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world.